Hello everyone, welcome to our podcast, Sabbath School From Home. We're very glad to have you here with us and my name is Cameron. I'm looking forward to another lively discussion this week. Hello everyone, wherever you are and whenever it is, this is Luke from Hong Kong and I'm very happy to be here as I always am uh, for this discussion. And I'm Lachlan uh, from Sydney and I'm glad that you're here to join us. The Sabbath School lesson for this week is called Seeing People Through Jesus' Eyes, and it explores the many different ways that Jesus role-modelled the kind of interaction with strangers, with needy people, with everyone that he came in contact with. And what we'd like to do for this discussion is focus in on a particular and quite well-known interaction that is recorded between Jesus and a Samaritan woman who comes to get water from a well. It's one of the longer stories recorded of this kind of interaction as a single narrative. So there's plenty of material for us to dig into, and we're going to have to limit our conversation to just certain key elements, I suppose. And this story is found in John chapter 4, and it's, it's roughly the, the first 35 verses of that chapter. Now, Clancy couldn't be with us this week. Uh, we had some very positive feedback Uh, from uh, listeners about our discussion, our episode last week. Uh, Well-deserved positive feedback, I think. It was great having Clancy with us. And uh, it's good having someone who who knows what they're talking about instead of pretends to. No, I shouldn't say that. We'll cut that out in the edit. Um, uh, But yes, Clancy couldn't be with us. Uh, But like, I understand that she sent through some comments about this story. Yeah. Uh, And given that it's a fairly uh, lengthy passage in the Bible, and that always challenges us a little bit for time, what I might do is use a couple of her comments just to help set the scene, because Clancy has done um, a fair bit of reading about the background of this story. Most Jews who would be making the journey between Jerusalem and Cana, Cana being where Jesus was headed on this trip, would avoid passing through Samaritan lands. Although it considerably shortened the journey to go through Samaria, it would mean possible contact with those considered impure. Jesus and his disciples break their 112-kilometre journey at about the halfway point where the town of Sychar is. Then, as now in the Middle East, wells were not provided with buckets. Travellers carried their own. You can still buy them if you're over there in markets. Um, These were leather buckets that can be rolled up when travelling for easy transport. And perhaps the disciples had taken theirs into the town when they'd gone to buy food. So Jesus sits next to, or as the text can be read, on top of this covered well. So that's the scene. And I suppose that's covering the first couple of verses. Mm, it's certainly the case, isn't it? That the, that the Jews and the Samaritans were not good friends. And when Christ wants to draw on a character in a, in a parable of his as an unlikely hero someone that his listeners will be prejudiced against, uh, someone perhaps you wouldn't anticipate to be good. He, of course, tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, so mm. uh, it, is his, it is the go-to racial, racial stereotype that you would use if you wanted to put a Jewish audience offside. Yeah. I, I find it interesting the, the length that the Jewish people would go to 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 take a longer detour just to avoid contact with these people who were so impure. Well, I think Clancy's insights into the context about, well, being firstly, well, they knew it was possible to go around. 
Uh, and secondly, that there was danger associated with it. It's always easier to uh, ostracize or demonize or otherwise look down on a, a group of people if there is some justification of threat. Maybe not uh, a deserved one, but, you know, we rationalize our fears. Um, yeah, we do. And I wonder, I wonder how much, how much of that was, uh, that's the sort of, I'm just, I'm totally editorializing. I'm, this is not written in the Bible, uh, certainly in this part of it. But I, I wonder how much of the perception that Jews had of Samaritans was justified away by things like, oh, well, they're you know they hate us and they're dangerous yeah yeah you know, it's a dangerous neighborhood yeah the samaritan neighborhoods are more dangerous than jewish ones on average that sort of thing mm. um you, you don't have to go too far in the world today to find racial stereotypes and um you know discrimination um in the u.s it's in the news with the police um, that's justified on the basis that certain racial groups are dangerous or I thought he was reaching for a gun or you know all these stereotypes we we have a huge power of the uh, our, our brain to make stereotypes and they're incredibly useful to us so if we had to process every single encounter with every single person and do a detailed analysis of what we thought of them before we interacted with them uh then it would be very difficult for us to do this. We have, you know, you see someone who's big and who's burly and who's on a Harley Davidson and you immediately make certain associations. They're obviously demonstrably not always true. You see someone in a, in a, in a jacket with the leather patches on the elbows and big glasses and five pens in a pen protector in the pocket um, and you make... You make different set of associations. They're demonstrably not always true either, but they are incredibly useful. Uh, they let us process things in real time much quicker. They ease the workload on the brain. They ease the workload on the brain. And, and although they are demonstrably false, they are demonstrably useful at times, or our, at least our capacity to make stereotypes is demonstrably useful. It is, uh, you know, it's just part of the human condition, though, that we are subject to impressions. Uh, so, yeah, I think th there's obviously a lot of stereotypes under the surface in this story. And it would be nice to say that we don't suffer from any stereotypes. Would be nice. <laughs> well, the, this discussion of stereotypes and of the way that we sort of build these libraries of default approaches to problems actually connects really closely with another comment that Clancy made uh, when I was chatting to her earlier. And that was a comment that she made about Jesus's actions initially in this interaction. It fell to the women of the first century households to fetch and carry water. This would happen early in the morning and late in the afternoon when the day was cool. And it would be done as a group to ensure the integrity of everybody's reputation and also so there would be physical help lifting up the heavy containers to carry them back when they were filled. And she comes alone in the middle of the day. This is immediately suspicious. She seems to be avoiding associating with other women. Uh, many commentators point out that it's possible that the other women wouldn't associate with her, that she would had been ostracized. And Jesus speaks to her. Firstly, to be polite, custom dictated that Jesus should have gotten up and walked at least 20 feet away. 
showing her that it was safe to come and fetch water, that he was not a threat. But he stays where he is, in the way, on top of the cover. And he asks her to give him a drink. He speaks to her alone. Men were not even supposed to speak to their own wives in a public place, let alone a strange woman. On that note, when the in verse 27, when the disciples returned, it doesn't say that they were surprised to see Jesus talking with the Samaritan. It says that they were surprised to see him talking with the woman. Yeah. You know, verse 9, the, the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. So there's there's a surprise because of the of the Jew Samaritan thing. There also Clancy's come in highlights. There also would have been all sorts of other surprise. The woman, so just connecting back to our discussion about those default brain patterns for risk assessing and and sort of detecting patterns almost when there aren't any. This woman is clearly a little bit on the run, so to speak, because she's coming in the day alone rather than as would have been regular pattern for women coming to the well. There's a man sitting on top of the well. He doesn't move, but he asks her to give him a drink. I mean, all sorts of... She must have had huge alarm bells going off in her mind. This is, this is an interesting way to look at the, at the, at the story. Because remember, we're discussing this broadly in the context of, of seeing how Jesus sees people, how he interacts with people. The woman would have thought Jesus was being improper. I, we don't see it. Because, you know, we are looking at this from a society in which a man and a woman having a conversation in a public place is not at all weird. But his behavior is extremely unusual. And it's not just either, is it, that they didn't have conversations in public. It's that there was perceived, at least among the male... So, I mean, one could imagine a society where men and women were held in equal regard and given equal powers of influence and powers of decision-making, but where, for reasons of appearing proper and, and you know, everything else, we still didn't have conversations in public. So the fact that they didn't talk in public, the men and women didn't talk in public, doesn't necessarily point to any systemic sexism. But, of course, in this case, there was also, additionally, systemic sexism. So uh, that would have been an extra dynamic that would have made this you know, very peculiar, this conversation that Christ has. Yeah, it gets interesting here. So Clancy made an interesting connection back to the fact that we've already had the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. In verse 12, the woman asks a question which we as the reader have the beginning of an answer to. Are you greater than our father Jacob? To the woman at the well, Jesus looked like any dusty, tired and thirsty traveller, one with no bucket. But we know something that she doesn't. We know that the one she's speaking to can turn water into wine. And we know his words to Nicodemus in the previous chapter, that whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. The thought occurs to me that it's not just Christ, or at least it's not just a Jewish man that would have had to overcome many stereotypes or preconceived notions to talk to the, this woman. Uh, she must have, as, as the story shows, had many preconceived ideas of her own. She seems to buy into this, this conflict between the Samaritans and the Jews. She's almost asking Christ to adjudicate uh, on, you know, on some issue. You know, she has to overcome a fair number of her stereotypes 
stereotypes as well. It's always puzzled me in the past that Christ is so oblique when he's talking with this woman. I mean, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. It, it will spring up inside and become a... Well, we read this as, you know, wonderful metaphor, the well of eternal life inside us and all the rest of it, but it must have been very incomprehensible. Uh, the thought occurs, though, that this may have been very deliberate. Did you know that happy people and comfortable people respond more readily to stereotype? So they did a study where they showed people, and I'm, re- I'm remembering something that I read about a couple of years ago. I hope I've got the details right. But they did a study where they showed pictures uh, in front of the person taking the study. And so I lead you in. I say, here's a red button. I'm going to f- put pictures up on the screen. When you see a picture of someone carrying a gun, you have to hit the red button and shoot them before they shoot you. That's the scenario. And then the pictures flash up really quick. And they're they're flashing by, 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 by. You hardly have any time. And when you see someone with a gun, you hit the red button. Now, of course, some of the people in the pictures have darker skin. Some of them have facial hair. Some of them are wearing turbans. And if you do this to an American audience or American participants, um, those characteristics get targeted unfairly. In other words, there's a picture of someone wearing a turban and they're carrying an umbrella and it's not a gun. But in the heat of the moment, the red button gets pushed anyway. So this this is something, this is a sort of test that you can do to uh, determine how strong are people's discriminatory stereotypes. Yeah, a subconscious bias, I think it's called. It's a subconscious bias, yeah. But what they did in this particular study was, is before people took the study, they watched one of two films. One of them was a very happy film, and one of them was a a sad film. And the people who had just come out of a happy film unfairly shot more people wearing turbans. They were more trigger-happy. Yeah, okay, they were more reliant on that subconscious bias. The subconscious bias was more evident. Whereas people who were had come out of a, a disturbing experience. Something which maybe shook their confidence. Shook their confidence a little bit. They processed things more, more clearly. But it does seem that, that Christ is being deliberately provocative to break through some of these ideas. I think that's a really interesting idea, Cam. Because you're exactly right. As you read through, and the story goes further... You know, just when she starts to get on board with what he's saying in verse 15, after he's described his eternal water as giving them eternal life. Verse 15, the woman says, please, sir, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. That's obviously really resonated with her because she doesn't like going to get water in the middle of the day alone when it's dangerous and there's weirdos sitting on top of the well. But straight away, Jesus, at that point, Jesus adds an extra layer of discomfort. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. And, and you know, I don't have a husband, she replied. We know because we know the story. You know, she's had five husbands and isn't even married to the man she's living with now. Jesus is pushing again into that discomfort zone. Mm. Mm. And it is interesting because in this story, right, the, the layers, at first the woman recognizes him as a Jew. And then in verse 15, when she likes the sound of the water, it's please, sir. There's a little bit of deference given because she's now really quite anxious to get whatever he's talking about. It sounds really good. And then in verse 19, 
the woman said, you must be a prophet, and immediately fires a technical question at him because he's obviously an expert. And I know that I've heard one of the Avondale theology lecturers, Norm Young, talk about this uh, as an experience that, that he has had in the past. Uh, he turns up somewhere, and because he is a theologian, uh, but he's a New Testament theologian, people will say, ah, you must know the answer, and will fire all sorts of oblique, obscure questions at him to answer. So that's exactly what happens here. The woman immediately says that the, Jesus must be a prophet and asks about the right place to worship. And Jesus doesn't have much time for that. He doesn't really answer it. And then in verse 25 and 26, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And verse 26, then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. There's a very steep progression of sort of comprehension going on here from from a, a scary Jew on a well to a disclosure of being the Messiah. To how many people did Christ proclaim himself as the Messiah? It can't be very many. Clancy did comment this in this story in the Gospel of John. This is the Jesus's first declaration of who he is. It's also I mean, it's also you said that Jesus doesn't answer the the woman's technical question. That's not quite true. He answers it very definitively. He says it doesn't matter. It's completely immaterial. <laughs> Which is another incredibly, incredibly unusual, provocative, unconventional, crazy piece of behavior because it's the whole basis on which the Samaritan and, and Jews have their their mutual hatred. And I think we forget how different this is this would have felt now in keeping with previous episodes where where i put hypothetical situations out there with i'm afraid dear listener the intent of making you feel a little bit uncomfortable here's the analogy of what this would feel like christ comes down to earth and we say oh you must be a prophet now tell us the truth is it really necessary to worship on sabbath we think it's right it's the correct day it's the correct time it's according to the word of god it's the true tradition we've inherited there's all these basically semi-pagan misfits out there who who think that it's been changed to sunday what do you say and christ turning around saying us looking at us and saying you've completely missed the point it has no impact at all one way or the other that is what it would have felt like to have had this question answered in that way certainly very challenging for the woman and her entire picture of what's happening it's it's telling isn't it? That that's the first thing that pops into her mind when she suspects she's talking to someone who might know the answer. Mm. You must be a prophet, sir, the woman said. So tell me, why is it that, you know, she jumps immediately into that question. It's clearly important, like you say, Cam. The other thing, though, that would be very interesting, I think, for the uh, Jews and would have given them perhaps some pause for thought, for the Jews in the, the early Christians who were predominantly from a Jewish background, uh, look, looking and talking with the disciples about this encounter that Christ had, is that they had always prided themselves on being theologically superior to the Samaritans. This is the whole trouble with the Samaritans, is that they weren't fully pagan. It was almost worse, wasn't it? Because they were sort of almost right, but just on these key issues, they were just wrong. Yes, you see the Jews almost respect the romans more yeah yeah and they they had they the samaritan people genesis came about because of a 
the captivity of the um, nation of Israel, and it was mixing pagan gods with Jewish. It was it was everything that would have been absolutely abhorrent to the Jewish. Yet here is a woman, disre- disreputable character from a remote Samaritan village, who is obviously well schooled enough to know that a Messiah is coming and to be anticipating the coming of the Messiah. In point of fact, she turns out to see with much clearer vision than most of the Jews did. So what what use was all that theological superiority? What what use was all the pure doctrine? I mean, Christ does say that the Samaritans are worshipping a bit in the dark, but the Jews see clearly. But what use was it to be right for the Jews? If if someone like this woman was was able to come to Christ, see him, recognise, identify more of his who he was and what he meant, then you know the disciples did in years, in one conversation. So I agree with everything you've said, Cam. I think it's good, but there is one caveat: the chapter before this, a a fairly earnest and learned Jew named Nicodemus, who was a religious leader who was a Pharisee came to Jesus and had a similar encounter of, of earnestly seeking Jesus and discussing and had similarly obtuse answers thrown at him about being born again, that he, I don't know whether he was deliberately being pedantic to go all literal on Jesus at that point or not. All I'm saying is there, there were some for whom the correct doctrine and the Jewish heritage yes. did help them understand and seek Jesus, but I think they were the minority. As the story unfolds out of the Gospels and into the book of Acts and into the New Testament, it seems it seems very fair to that your, your point stands very strong. Yeah, nor is it the case that every Samaritan embraced Christ wholeheartedly. So it is not necessarily the case that ignorance is a good thing. Uh, but I think that the question still needs to be raised you know we belong to a denomination that prides itself on knowing the whole truth whatever that is interestingly we all simultaneously hold to a doctrine of present truth which to my mind infers that we don't yet know the whole truth so there's a conflict there that i find very difficult to resolve yes uh, otherwise you don't need the qualifier present you just call it the truth <laughs> yeah yeah mm. But, you know, we, we pride ourselves on correctness. We, we know the right information and the right answers to the right questions. It, is that necessarily something that will lead us to Christ unfailingly? Or is this story a bit of a warning to us? Well, it's certainly true that in this story, uh, again, if we're going to discuss this in the broad context of seeing people through Jesus' eyes, I guess what we have in this story is the contrast, don't we, between Jesus's evaluation of this woman at the well and the evaluation of his Jewish disciples who come back and have all sorts of shock, horror, surprise, discomfort, uh, what have you, in their reaction. And it does make me a little concerned that if your dominant narrative about yourself is that you are pure and the bearer of of the greatest truth with the greatest clarity, it is very, very easy to slip accidentally into seeing other people as being not just slightly lesser, but active threats, contaminants. You can't hang around with them too much because what if, what if they rub off on you a little bit? 
Uh, and it may not be their actions or their evil deeds or their dishonesty or whatever it might be that you're assessing. It may even just be something as simple as their questions or their doubts. Yeah. You know, might rub off on you. And that would be pretty risky if you were dominated by a fe- uh, by a sort of feeling of being right yeah, all the I time. I think that is one danger. The other danger you can fall into is imagining that you have no needs. One of the things that this woman has is a consciousness of her own needs. And that is not something that was shared by, for instance, the Pharisees, act- actively criticised by Christ for imagining that they have no needs. You know, they say what... Uh, uh, what are you saying that we're ill too? And Christ says, "Well, if you knew you were ill, you'd be a darn sight healthier than you are at the moment, uh, and you could come to the doctor mm. and be healed." So there's this ignorance of your own needs, and this does heavily influence, or ought to heavily influence, the concept we have of witnessing. One of the passages of the Bible that I honestly um, find most challenging, personally, and I think that. The Adventist Church, or at least most local um, congregations that I've ever been to, has found found it most challenging, is the passage in in one of Paul's writings where he's describing the church as a body, and he says, "You know, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you.' That's that's difficult. It's very easy to love people who are a bit different to us. You can love them in spite of their faults. Uh, in spite of everything, we we still love them." Uh, but to say that you need them, to say that you're deficient without them, if if you, I think, allow the 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 premise that God would like everyone to be part of His family, that people who are not part of the Christian Church, whatever the Christian Church is, uh, the people people who are outside it are are potential converts. Every single person is a potential convert including the President of the United States. Uh, if, if you hold that every person is a potential convert, that they, that they have a place in Christ's body, and then you say in the next breath that no one member of the body can say to another member, I don't need you, then that forbids us to look at people we're trying to convert and say to them, we have everything and you have nothing. We've got the sum total picture. We're complete. Everything fits together in us and we are God's little sunbeams and we've got it all right and you have deficiencies and needs that we can fill. I mean, obviously, I, I think that we all have deficiencies and needs that need filling and, and people outside the church hopefully do have some that can be met by the church. But we must also say, look, you need to come become part of our church because we have deficiencies. Cal, I think that's a very, a very deep insight and one that is not uh, considered or understood enough in, in, by the church generally. And I think I need to go and think about it for a bit. But it rings true. It is not the way that we traditionally think about witnessing. And traditionally, the view of, of conversion of witnessing, of bringing the good news, is one in which the bringer of the good news has all of the value and the receiver of the good news receives all the benefit. But of course, that's not true. Mm. That shouldn't be true. I've pondered this. And, and it's it's not... 
sorry, look, I'll, this is just this is short. It's it's not effective either, and I can tell you it's not effective because in many ways the modern uh, non-profit sector. And this is actually a whole separate topic that we could talk about for a long time. But in many ways, the modern nonprofit sector grew directly out of the missionary ethos. Um, it, it is a child of missionary work. And indeed, as a side note, uh, uh, the church administration considers me a missionary. And, and its early forms, the early forms of sort of international development and charity were very much along the lines of bringing the light to the heathens. This has since been proven by piles of data too big to conceive uh, to be a bad way of doing things. And the most effective way of doing international development now that we know um, is by facilitating, and it is community-led, it is beneficiary-led work in which you simply provide the tools and the opportunities that people have been denied through injustice and are in need of. You provide them with these tools and opportunities and they help themselves because they have value. So this is, I've thought about this a lot because in the in society at large, in a place like Australia, with a very strong colonial heritage, um, our attitudes have moved deeply post-colonial. And I know in academia there's post-colonial literature and post-colonial readings of historical artifacts, even post-colonial readings of the Bible. And I'm not trying to minimize them. I'm just saying that you don't need to go digging into academia to find the a prevalence of post-colonial attitudes. What I mean by that is colonialism is built around the idea of... Um, we as the colonizers have all that is of value except your land and resources and we need to bring you civilization and there's not much you can teach us there's only resources you can give us we can take post-colonialism says hey we're in this together let's have a dialogue i have something of value but i'm interested to learn from you because i respect and anticipate that you have something of value and it's really interesting to me that jesus continually uses the phrase seek the kingdom of God. He doesn't use the phrase broadcast the kingdom of God, take it and where it is not yet and, um, and plant it there. He says to seek it. I hear that as wander through the world with your eyes open and your ears open. You will see and find pockets of the kingdom of God everywhere. So, so as a missionary in a post-colonial way, you go seeking to amplify the pockets of the kingdom that already exist, which is quite a different mindset from taking the kingdom in a bag or a box or a book and delivering it where it has not yet previously been. It's a very different thing to say, I will go out and, and seek the kingdom of God in other people. I will find out what God is doing in their hearts and in their lives. I will bring them the truth that I know and I will learn from them. Because I have needs. And it's I have an, deficiencies. It's an insight into how, coming back to the topic, how Jesus treats people. I assume what the lesson plan, uh, maybe unfairly assume, is getting at with bringing up this story is to go, well, Jesus didn't look at her social status and he didn't look at her 
her sins and her immorality and he loved her for who she was anyway, etc., 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 that sort of traditional view of it. All of which is true. Um, but if you're talking about how he treated her, what he does with this conversation, the whole point he has this conversation with her, um, is to convert the whole town, as we see in later verses. He is using her. She has something of value to him. Um, yeah. In his mission, yeah. uh, she has and, and, to give. and what in what in fact she has a value in his mission uh, to tie it back to last week is a personal testimony. Yeah. Ah, yes, yes, indeed. This would have been a good passage to read in that context, also. Um, look, as we're as in closing, what do you think about this question? If this woman, as a Samaritan, was one of the um, was one of the group of people that the Jews despised and Jesus breaks through that kind of cultural default or, or uh, subconscious bias or conscious bias as it may be in this case who are the people whom due to the influence of our own culture and society today we tend to view disdainfully or with a lack of respect well hey there's one last observation I want to make before we we move on to that sort of closing question. Um, this sort of reflects really well on the disciples. Um, because if you look at verse 27, you can see that they're, they're kind of getting used to his behavior. <laughs> and they trust him because, mm. uh, y- you know, they've gone into Samaria with him. And he's done this weird thing again that he does, these weird things where he talks to people where he shouldn't. Um, but they're just like, well, he knows what he's doing. Mm. Um, and they just accept it. And then a couple of days later, because they stay in the town for a couple of days, um, most of the town converts. Like Getting back to your question, who, who for us would, would fit the place held by the Samaritan woman? The stereotype, the prejudice against the Samaritan woman was very specific. Uh, firstly, it was one of gender. Uh, women, do we treat women equally? Do we see that they have something to give to our church? That's obviously something that's under fairly vociferous debate at the moment. I think this story should inform that debate. Uh, secondly, she was a Samaritan. The Samaritans were not pagans. The Jews also despised the Romans. They also despised, you know, the Greeks. But but the Samaritans, they hated especially. And we do tend to have the strongest feelings reserved for those that are closest to us. Uh, there's that story, isn't there, that uh, Dad tells Locke, um, I think he heard it in a sermon once. You know, I was walking down a bridge and I saw a man and he was about to jump. And I said, don't jump. Don't you know there's a God who loves you? And the man said, well, yes, I know there's a God who loves me. I'm a Christian. I said, well, that's amazing. I'm a Christian too. In fact, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And the the man said, well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian too. And I said, are you a nutmeat-eating Seventh-day Adventist Christian? He said, yes, I'm an Ellen White-reading, nutmeat-eating Seventh-day Adventist Christian. So that's amazing. I read Ellen White too. 
you know, and are you a black leather-bound King James Version, Ellen White reading, nutmeat-eating Seventh-day Adventist Christian? And the man said, well, actually, I, I read out of the NIV. And I cried, you heretic, and pushed him off. <laughs> so there, yes. there is this idea that the closer we get to each other, the, the stronger our feelings are. And uh, the Samaritan were people, were, were people with semi-truths. They were sort of there. They were expecting the Messiah, but basically all the details they had wrong. And the people that hold that place for the Adventist Church is the Roman Catholic Church. Ah, right. Uh, or the Orthodox Church. But the Orthodox Church isn't close enough for us to have very strong feelings against. Uh, I think I think Roman Catholicism would fit that gap. They are people yeah. who not have nothing to enough. offer us. We have nothing to learn. We convert them mm-hmm. wherever we can. And we generally enjoy feeling superior. In fact, we explicitly enjoy feeling superior. I've heard multiple sermons whose point seems to be a celebration of how superior we are. Mm. I don't know that we do try and convert them whenever we can. I've never, I've never heard anybody in the Adventist Church talk about having a mission to the Catholics or a heart for the Catholics. I think or you're a right. It would be, it would be more common. It'd be more common to have a, a mission. For Muslims, yeah. oh, it is more common. Uh, in the church administration today, you only the only talk you ever hear about is, is of the cities and of the sixty forty window, and the sixty forty window, um, if you're not familiar, is the portion of the world in which, I think it's sixty percent of the world's population lives, and it's forty percent of the world's area. I think that's what it refers to, but it's predominantly Muslim, or atheist. Hmm. Right. Well, I think that's interesting, Cam, that you've that you've identified a key component of the disdain in this story is because of essentially religious differences. Um, so I think that's a challenge, a, a substantial challenge. And certainly those of us who are Adventists should be pondering that, especially in our mind as we approach this story to try and just just see what we can pick up. Uh, if we were to treat this as a case where Jesus is role modeling certain interactions with people, I think fundamentally he approaches her with respect. And even though he's quite provocative and a little bit uh, obtuse in some of his answers, I really like what you said, Cam, about that being trying to break through barriers that would otherwise be preventing the interaction from really going anywhere. So um, the fundamental of of respect and and you know engaging more or less pleasantly even while being a little bit stimulating and provocative is something that we should certainly remember when we're going to be discussing issues with people that are close to us but that we may not agree quite with he's not chatting to her for fun or to show off or to make her feel bad and and you're absolutely right, Lachlan. He, he there's definite. He respects her far more than probably anybody else who she ever meets does, because he treats her as somebody of value. Yeah, someone with a contribution to make to his cause. Of course, the challenge for me personally is the people that I tend to naturally 
look down on perhaps or feel superior to are the people in my own denomination who are the ones preaching against Catholics. You know, I, I feel like that sort of um, conservative brand of Adventism, which does see Adventism as, as something with no needs and something that's altogether good and something that has a mandate to impose its views on other people. Uh, I, I, I don't see the Adventism church, uh, Adventist church that way. And I see the people who push those views as very difficult. Uh, yeah, if I'm honest, I see them as on the fringe. And the challenge for me in this story is that they, for me, for me personally, they might be my Samaritan. They're the person that I have to look at and say, they, I have needs that this person can help me with. Uh, you know, this is someone who has something to give. Hmm. The challenge in this story is almost endlessly reflexive. But we do have to end this podcast. So, uh, <laughs> of course, of course, I don't know we how we're going to do that. Can, can you set an MP3 lock to automatically loop? Because then, it, then, our, <laughs> then our podcast could be reflexive. Yeah. <laughs> you could just, just cut it immediately after the phrase where Lachlan says, I don't know how we're going to end this podcast. That's the place to stop it.